Welcome to the Chantal Hyde Canada's Dating Coach Podcast, where you'll learn to love and be loved. Come understand how powerful you are and share in our common experiences so that we can all grow together. Like Chantal loves to say, let's do this. How are you? I'm super, super, super good. So I always dive straight into this. Um, So for all my listeners, all my watchers, um, this is Melissa. She is my new friend. We met her in Costa Rica. Um, So I was not one of the initial people that met you, but um, somebody in my group uh, became friends with you and apparently right on time because you had run out of people. Um, You Mm -hmm. had outgrown some people that you were having a good time with and you know like people change and life shifts and um priorities change and sometimes their personalities change and sometimes you kind of go wow like that old group isn't quite my group anymore and uh, you have said to yourself well I guess I guess my days of having fun are numbered like I guess it's over and then you met our people yes yeah I said to you um I had had like a thought right before that had happened and I thought okay I guess that's it. You know, I'm not going to meet any new cool people. I'm getting older. And all of a sudden, there you guys were. It was awesome. And then we had a party at your house, my friend's birthday party. We did. We had a really fun party at my house. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I think think, think you stayed for two days. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was a double sleepover. It was, it was so good. Um, no regrets. Had such a good time. You guys are amazing. And me being yeah. the person that I am, right? Like I'm, I'm just like a natural detective. Uh, yeah. Like Jeremy will say, I'm the one who's, always, who's like seeing everything, right? Yeah. And um, so I was in your office getting like the little tour of the house. And of course I see books and I saw that there was books with your name on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I am, I'm a therapist and unlike you, I do not specialize in relationships, but um, I do a lot of work and I write a lot about uh, core beliefs and schemas that we develop during our childhood. Um, and these schemas or these core beliefs are what we basically use as a map to make sense of the world in our adult life. And um I think it ties in nicely with what you do, though, because these schemas really um, affect the way we act in relationships, right? So they're pretty important. Yeah. So you are mm-hmm. a therapist, and in your practice, yeah. you're dealing mostly with people who are in relationships? Yeah. So to me, I mean, my mantra kind of is relationships are medicine. So, um, and there's lots of relationships, right? There's uh, relationships that we have with ourselves, uh, relationships that we have with the land, the environment around us, and then relationships that we have with each other. Yeah. And in my practice, what I tend to see, um, I see a lot of trauma bonding. Um, I see a lot of people who are very much unconsciously creating the dynamics of past toxic relationships. Um, and not understanding why that keeps happening to them, right? So there's like this attempt to heal, um, but then there's this recreation of this chaos, chaos in a relationship, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the books that I saw your name on, those were workbooks, were they not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I use a lot of different workbooks. 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know what it's like. Do you use any kind of like tests in your practice or like personality tests or anything like that? Only the love language quiz. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of the, yeah. So the workbooks I have, they are primarily based around um, understanding those dynamics in a relationship and what we're bringing into it. Right. So it could be statements like, um, I have a really hard time trusting people. Um, You know, at the end of the day, I think all people will let me down. I have a really hard time being vulnerable with people. So a lot of, yeah, my workbooks, they're based on more or less, I think a lot of the beliefs that we bring into a relationship with us that we don't necessarily say out loud, if that makes sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity, um, how long have you been a therapist for? I have been a therapist now for 14 years. Yeah. Are there any philosophies or methodologies that you learned in the beginning that since then you've kind of tossed aside because you're like, you know what? I don't, I don't really believe in this or I I don't see this working or that have been tossed aside by the industry even. Well, um, it's interesting because I am certified as a CBT therapist, um, but my interest has very much gravitated towards like polyvagal. So the best way I can describe it is that when you think about CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a very top down approach. So we start with the mind and then we move down to the emotions and then the behaviors in the body. So I'm starting to gravitate more towards the polyvagal, which would be a bottom up approach where we're looking at embodiment, uh, actually getting our thoughts and our feelings in our bodies. So we're embodied so we can feel properly. And then we start to work our way up, right? Because a lot of people um, are actually uh, not consciously in their bodies, right? And in in our society right now, unfortunately, um, I like to call it like a collective sickness. There's a lot of um, reactionary behavior right now. So that's when people are like, they're not responding anymore. They're just reacting, right? And they're reacting to things around them. And they're in that fight, fight, freeze, you know, survival mode. So, you know, when we turn on TikTok or we turn on Instagram and we see, oh, look at this video of this woman freaking out on the TTC or this man yelling at this man, like I'm seeing trauma reactions. I'm seeing people who are in survival mode. So when we think about something like CBT, which is the most evidence-based, most prescribed form of therapy, it's almost like cutting the head off a hydrangea to some extent, right? Because we can start to battle some of those thoughts, but if we're really deeply not connected to ourselves, um, we don't have that opportunity to actually respond to what's going in our body, right? So when you think about something like a polyvagal, that's getting yourself in your body. So you're aware of those feelings and those thoughts, and then you can create space between them and then your reaction to them. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So yeah. when you started using this? I've been using this now for about um, a year. Uh, and I actually really got into it um, do you know the holistic psychologist? I haven't heard of that. No. 
So she has a huge Instagram. She's amazing. She has this community of um, self healers and she's really changing the way we approach psychology um, and therapy in general, because it, like, like in my work where I do do the schema work, where I look at the childhood, where I look at the early attachments, you know, she's really looking at, um, it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you, right? right? What happened to you in your life? And how did that affect like the biochemical reactions you have in your brain, right? Because we know, and there's more coming out about this now, but we know um, children who grow up in abusive homes or even, you know, and when we think abuse, we think physical abuse, but even growing up and, you know, not feeling safe in your environment and constantly having high levels of like cortisol and adrenaline in your body, right? You become addicted to that feeling. And it becomes normal to you. And one thing that we know, and and this is why we see people in relationships recreating these toxic relationships and these trauma bonds, is that when we have neural pathways that are known to us, even if the outcome is not that great, we'll often follow that same pathway because the other one is unknown. Right. Right. So we'll still go down that path of adrenaline and cortisol and fear and stress because it's what we know. Mm -hmm. And to us, that makes sense on some deep, deep level. So that's where we get into the polyvagal. Let's get into that deep, deep level. Let's try to understand what's happening inside of you um, on that very biochemical level. What's going on with that vagal nerve? What's going on in your stomach, which is, you know, your second brain, right? And let's start connecting all of these pieces to find out really what happened to you and why you're living like this, right? I love this. Yeah. Um, like I, you know, obviously I come across people who are in that fight or flight mode, right. They're having all these difficulties in their relationship because they can't stop fighting. And, um, you know, one thing that I say about people who are constantly picking and creating fights is I say, I understand that fighting makes you feel alive. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, and I can see how it's because they've always had this, this fight going on and we see what's familiar, right? Like you're saying, they have that neural pathway that this is the familiar path. And so I keep recreating that because there's a comfort in the familiar instead Mm -hmm. of fear of the unknown, which is the unfamiliar neural pathway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another thing I always say is, you know, we need connection and toxic connection is still a connection. So if a toxic connection is the only connection we know, we will seek that toxic connection And then we'll wonder like, why does this keep happening to me? Why do I keep attracting people like this? And often what you'll see in these trauma bonds too, is that it's going both ways, Mm -hmm. right? Not just one partner, it's both partners are recreating this um, dynamic in their current relationship, but it's coming from a place of attempting to heal a wound, right? But we're often so unconscious of what those wounds are because some of them developed before we really even had that cognitive memory, right? Because we know like infant mental health, for example, is becoming more of a thing now, but we know those first three years, right? How you're touched, how you're held, how you're talked to, do you feel safe? All of those things are so impactful for your whole life, for your adulthood, for everything, right? And a lot of people don't even know what that part of their life was even like. So it can be really difficult to heal a wound that you don't know about. But the thing is, is we will continually try. And that's where we see it acted out often in those most intimate relationships. And it's over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. Um, 
so we talk, you know, like I got all excited about what it is that you do. I'm like, let's do a podcast. We're like, let's do a monthly podcast. And I said, the first one I want to do is talk about your thesis. If you were to go after your PhD. Yes. Yes. So if I was going to go after my PhD, I, I, there's two things that I kind of lean towards. Um, one is two-eyed seeing, which is an indigenous approach to healing combined with westernized approaches, which is another passion of mine because I do work for an indigenous service provider, uh, which is absolutely amazing. And then um, my other thesis would be around um, the core beliefs or be around the schema work that I was talking about at the beginning. And um really helping people function on the level where they understand what these core beliefs are. They know what triggers them. Um, they're able to, you know, accept that maybe that core belief is a part of who they are. Try to figure out what it wants for them because most of the time it wants them to be safe, right? It's protection. And then figuring out ways to cope with that part of themselves and feed that part of themselves so that they can move forward through the world, understanding that, yes, they might have these internal reactions at times, mm -hmm. but they can deal with it and they are more powerful than they even know. Right. So those are kind of my two, my two areas that I would like to go into. And I think they do connect as well, because a lot of the work I do, you know, with the indigenous community right now, um, you know, has to do with that past trauma, with that past hurt, um, with identity loss, with cultural loss. Um, and we know, you know, a big part of people is their identity and their self, like the, how they conceive themselves, right? And one thing that I've really started to realize through my work is that a lot of people don't conceive themselves anyways. They just conceive themselves through how other people see them, Yeah. right? So um, that identity piece is so, so important as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's uh, it, you know, interesting that like I get people to use a no kissing for three months dating role and it kind of, it creates separation, right? No kissing, no sex, no sleepover, no exclusivity for three months. And mm -hmm. it really, it forces people who are like, you know, um, kind of like addicted to the high of mm -hmm. like getting into something really quick with people and having that honeymoon high and being like an infatuation stage. And it's like extreme highs and extreme lows. He's so amazing. Oh no, turned out to be a total douchebag. And, um, and it really kind of forces them to sort of sit with their emotions and their thoughts because they can't stay in that infatuation phase because you create a physical separation at the mm -hmm. end of the day, right? Like yeah. you, you create some, like you can show affection, but not sexuality, right? Because mm -hmm. kissing is a sexual act is that one thing that precedes sex. So it's very, it's, it is, it's kissing, it, kissing is with sex. There's, you know, there's mm -hmm. sexual acts and non-sexual acts cuddling, holding hands, coming up behind somebody, putting your arms around them, you know, laying your head against their back. That's an affection act. That's intimacy. But kissing goes into sexuality because it's what leads to sexuality. It's that one behavior right before. Um, yeah. And it, it makes them have to be with themselves. Mm -hmm. Because there's no exclusivity for three months, right? So I, I have to force myself to not over connect to somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like to try, I try to talk about relationships with people as like the cherry on top of your Sunday, 
right? So you have a beautiful Sunday, you have all the sprinkles, you have all this stuff and it's great without the cherry and it's cool with the cherry too, right? And I see people in my practice, you know, who will come out of a relationship and it could be a very abusive relationship, for example, and they start to do really well and they start to do all of this healing. And just like you said, all of a sudden, someone shows up and they are the most amazing person in the world and they are on the exact same page of them in terms of their healing journey and everything's wonderful and the next thing you know my clients crediting this person with all of their own healing they're giving all away all their power and then two sessions later they're coming to me with red flags and I would never say I told you so, because that's not my job. I can't give advice <laughs> come to these conclusions on the, by themselves, but I see it all the time over and over and over again. Right. And that's, that's often what I refer to as a trauma bond, right? Because um, we give away our power in those relationships and we're seeking something on a very, very deep level. So yeah, to not have um, a kiss or anything like that for three months, I can really see how that would change the dynamic of a relationship because yeah, you have to be with yourself and your own feelings, but you also have to be with this other person in this very unclouded way. Right. So yes, I love how how do people respond to that? I'm curious. How do people respond to that? Uh, so you always get, it's, it's, I, I love it because it's very enlightening about where they are in their emotional journey. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you get the ones who are angry about it. Like is it roused them up, um, mm-hmm. they're to stay single forever. I guess you could be the cat lady sitting the kitty cats. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, you know, this is games, right? So you, you can see that there are people who, um, really rely on the physicality to gain mm-hmm. something for themselves. And mm-hmm. um, whether it's, it's you know, to, to, to just gain the physicality or whether it's to gain a sense of validation, right? I know I'm valid as a person because at least you want me and I need to feel wanted and desired, right? So you, you get the people who are mad about that. Um, and then you get the people who are like relieved at the opposite end is the people who are like, you mean, I have a choice. I don't have to kiss someone. I don't know. And there's plenty of people who are like, I thought I had to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there are a lot of um, expectations around that. And, you know, I just feel like relationships in general, they have, I mean, we're not going to date ourselves too much. We're obviously very young ladies here. (laughs) I can remember like quite specifically when the internet first came out and it was like such a taboo to be like, oh, I met them online. Right. Now, I mean, I really, I I kind of expect people to be meeting on dating apps and I expect people to be meeting online, right? But there used to be a more organic um, flow to these connections that we had. And I think the other piece about it is if we look at people like a commodity, right? Or information like a commodity, anything like that. We know when the market is oversaturated, it loses its value. So when you look at a dating app, and I mean, all you're doing is this or this, and we have these endless options. (laughs) Yeah, It's like, there's just so many options, right? There's just so many people, like what value does one individual person have anymore? And we're going in at such a superficial level, Right. right? And I mean, when you're just looking at someone's picture, 
that's a pretty sexual, physical type thing we're talking about, right? So I think the expectations around relationships are much more based in that sexual domain now than they ever really have been. Yeah. Um, I kind of think like, I mean, before dating apps, it was the bar. So Mm -hmm. between looking at a picture and going yes or no and looking at a a bar and going yes or no. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean, at least then you would have to talk to them (laughs) at least (laughs) or something. Right. I mean, you know, my story (laughs) about, about yeah, well, I mean, Steve was like this, you know, you were okay. Let me get this. You were working. He went to your boss. He said, she's with me tonight. Gave your boss money to give you the night off. Yes. So I was um, a flyer girl um, because again, before the internet, that's how you promoted parties. So I was a flyer girl and I was giving up flyers after a boat cruise and I had to go do guest lists. I believe it was at Mink nightclub. And he had come over to me and he said, I'm having this after party at my, at my condo. Would you like to come? And I said, well, I can't come, you know, cause I have to work. And uh, my boss, everyone knew him as Andrew mystery. He's one of our great friends now, but I said, Oh, you know, my boss, Andrew mystery, he won't let me do that. And Steve goes, well, where is your boss? And I go, well, he's right over there. And he walks up to my boss in front of me and he goes, what are you paying this girl tonight? And Andrew goes uh, 80 bucks. And he goes, okay here's a hundred. And he goes, all right, you're coming with me. So the best part was when I got to the condo after party, my boss was there and gave him the money back because they're like best friends, but it was still pretty smooth. It was pretty smooth. And he was living on top of um, a waterfront condo and the CN tower was right there and it was lovely. Um, But I was younger than him and, you know, um, maybe a little bit intimidated by him. And um, it's interesting because I, at that point in my life, I hadn't really dated someone like him. He had a car, he had a condo, he had all these things. He was so nice to me and it was so different for me. Right. And he was such a gentleman and he would take me on these lovely dates and open doors and do all of these things. And it started to feel like kissing him was going to be a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it became this really special thing. And the next thing you know, a month's passed and it hasn't happened. And the more time that was passing and those physical things weren't happening and we were spending all this time together, the more it felt like this really important thing, right? And when we finally, finally had our first kiss, he literally asked me, listen, I've been like dating you and following you around for three months. And I was like, I know you won't go away. (laughs) (laughs) And then he's like, listen, I don't want to do this anymore unless you will let me be your boyfriend. (laughs) And it felt like a marriage proposal at the time because it was such a big deal. Right. So, yeah, I found it really interesting that you had that story when you were at my place, because, of course, Steve chimed right in and he was like, that was us. That was us. I waited. I waited. It was interesting, too, because for him, it made him so much more intrigued. Right. Because he wasn't also used to a woman not just being like, "Okay, here. So it went both ways. Um, But it made the whole process so much more meaningful, obviously, to both of us. 
So yeah, it's, it's amazing. You have that rule though. It's absolutely amazing. If you ever need anyone to come out and like, you know, be a little spokesman for that rule, I'll do it (laughs) all day, every day, all day, every day. Um, we can definitely do like a whole podcast on that alone. Um, what would you say your, by the way, uh, can I just say like your husband is amazing. Uh, like amazing, obviously amazing husband. Um, I look at how well he took care of us. I'm like, must be an amazing dad. Yes. He's a great dad. Yeah. We have three kids. We started that very early. Um, yeah, he's very, um, he's a dad. So we'll be out and people will be like, he has the best dad jokes. I'm like, of course he does. (laughs) Right. I think for him, like he just, he always wanted to be a dad. It's always something he really wanted. And I think that's one of the things that really like attracted me to him in the beginning was um, the chivalrous qualities, obviously, but some of those traditional qualities as well as really just like, you know, wanting to be this role model for our daughters and teach them what a man does and all of those types of things. And I know we're in a place where, you know, we're talking less about gender and this and that, but to each their own. And I feel like I'm a very like feminine woman and he's like a very manly man. And he very much sees his role as like a caretaker and, you know, a giver and a father and a role model and all of those things. So I really, really value that. And I think with another thing with us, um, and I think it goes back to your three month rule is that we became great friends. Yes you know, like we're friends. And I always told him that I'm like, even if like our marriage fell apart or something ever happened, I'm like, I would always want to be your best friend. Right. Because like, we are actually probably friends first before we were even partners in that capacity. Right. So we share a group of friends. Yes. But I mean, we're really good friends and we think each other's jokes are hilarious and, you know, we like to cook and we like to have a good time together. So we do all of those things that friends do. And, you know, when you see us out in a group, it's not like you can say, okay, those two are together. Right. And I mean, I think I, I, I associate with a lot of people like that, but I value that. Like when people know they're together, they know their friends, they know they have each other you know, and then that friendship when you're in a larger group of people really just shines. And I think that's a great thing to have. I agree. I 100% agree. Like, you know, I have like little mottos, isms, right? Chantal isms, things that I say. And one of them is no more hoping games. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's 2022 bitches. We are not playing hoping games anymore. I'm not going to kiss you and hope we become friends. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use a no kissing for three months. Daniel. Well, if we don't become friends, I'm not going to kiss you. Yeah. 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 And that's like real life too, because like, don't you want to be friends with your partner? Yes. Right? I mean, nowadays in the world, I think, you know, we just put, we put so many expectations on one person. Yes. Not expect them to be your friend, but expect them to be everything else is craziness. Yeah because and when you think about some of your really good friends when you think about a good friend to me that's someone I trust some someone I tell things to someone who can keep a secret for me whatever it is right but to put all these other expectations on a partner you know my lover the best parent my this my this my this my this and then not expect them to be one of your best friends it just it doesn't add up it just doesn't add up because otherwise it's like I think that friendship piece is where you can actually be vulnerable 
Mm-hmm. Where you can actually really like talk about your bad day or not be your best self or whatever, right? Because when we think about a friendship, that's what we think someone we can go to when we're not our best selves. And I think in a lot of relationships now, we're really feeding into some of these stereotypes, some of this perfection, right? Uh, feeding into the expectations and thinking that this person has to give us everything but friendship. Mm. <laughs> Right. And that's a difficult dynamic. It's, it's, it's really, really hard for any one person to do that. I love, I love how you said that because it's kind of like, it's putting things in a neat little bow in my head because I have people who are like, I feel lonely in my relationship. Well, it's because you haven't made any friends other than your partner. You're looking to your partner to be your sole source of companionship. And this person has to work sometimes. Um, you know, or I feel bored in my relationship. And it's like, are you looking to your partner to be your source of entertainment? Um, right? Like you're, you don't have anything else going on outside of your relationship that's exciting and, and stimulating you. Um, and But the thing is, like, if we had an actual friendship, we wouldn't say I feel lonely, I feel bored if we're apart or if we're, you know, in the same room, but being quiet, doing our own things, we won't say that with a friend, but we'll say that about our partner. And so mm-hmm. we really do have a tendency to treat our partner differently than our peer-peer relationships. And we need to, we, we need to examine that. If we're not treating our partner like a friend, we mm-hmm. need uh, like really reassess that and start treating our partner like a friend, more like a peer. Mm-hmm. I love I love what you just said there about like having your own friends in your own life because I'm a huge advocate for that. I am like everybody needs their own stories. Everybody needs their own time. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. Absence yes. makes the heart grow fonder. Let's miss each other. Let's spend some time apart. Go do some cool things. Come back together and have new stories for each other. Right? We need our own self. Yeah. But I think unfortunately, you know, in some relationships as well, the reason why people don't have that, yes, it's because we're putting the expectations on somebody else to do all these things for us. And we also don't trust them. Right. (laughs) So that's the other piece, right? We're like, we're very, we're very nervous when they're not with us or when they're out doing their own thing, because there's a trust issue there. And that ties into the friendship. And why is there a trust issue? Because we didn't get to know who they were before we started a relationship. So we started a relationship with a stranger, kissed to see where it goes. And then we're in this relationship. Like we kissed and we have sex and the oxytocin and we're full in now. So we are emotionally involved. And then what happens after that is the sphincter clench. Oh shit, who did I commit myself to? And then we're figure out if they're trustworthy or not. So we're working things ass backwards, right? Instead of figuring out if they're trustworthy and then kissing and committing to the one who is we're getting into a relationship and then trying to figure out if they're trustworthy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it's true too. I mean, we watched that, we watched that Ted talk together, that other piece around, you know, you know, the, the, the courting, right. And how we used to, we used to commit to somebody and, you know, that was our person. That was the first time we were intimate with someone. Right. And now it's the opposite. We commit to someone and we stop being intimate with everybody else. Yeah. So if we don't know that person. Um, we don't really know what that part of their life ever even looked like. Yeah. Right. We, a lot of the times we don't even have those conversations. Um, you know, I encourage people in my practice to talk about 
past relationships and what they learned from them and, you know, what lesson it taught them. And it's amazing to me how many couples don't even have that conversation because there is that much insecurity around it. Like, you know, most people that I know, you know, they've had two or three serious relationships before their marriage or before their partner that they're with. And often more often than not, they don't talk about it. So it's, you're also shutting that part of your life off. Right. And it's almost like it didn't exist. And to me, that's where the secret keeping starts, but that's a mutual thing, right? Because the other person isn't open to hearing about it. So I think there's like, and I think what we're starting to go into is that area, you know, where there's those little red flags at the beginning of a relationship that we do discount or, you know, kind of sweep under the rug because of the oxytocin, (laughs) because of that cuddle hormone. Right. And we're kind of like, but we have this. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a beautiful rule and I think it could be, you know, light changing for so many couples if they just took the time to have those conversations and connect on that level before, you know, jump into the sack or whatever. Right. I'm definitely seeing the results in my comment sections. Um, Mm -hmm. Not just, not just the people who are happy because they've used it and found somebody great and they're settling into this, this amazing relationship, but Mm -hmm. also people who are saying, wow, like I'm seeing the wrong ones so quickly and I'm walking away. Um, Like, I feel like a weight has come off. Dating is so much easier. There's no more pressure on me, right? The pressure to get somebody that you don't know and hope for the best. So Mm -hmm. I love it. And when you're not kissing, your mouths are not occupied, meaning you're talking. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what would you say some of the like red flags are in the beginning of a relationship? Um, when you introduce the no kissing for three months dating, their reaction can be a red flag, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who calls, oh, that's a game. Okay, <laughs> okay. not going to not stick it around here because you're calling mm-hmm. to know me a game. So if something as logical as getting to know me is a game, what mm-hmm. else am I going to think is logical and makes sense that you're going to poo poo and step on and gaslight me on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, that whole game player dynamic, that is a, that's a huge thing. Right. Um, and I think, I think I've always been very bad at it. Um, cause in all my relationships, I am very, uh, transparent at the very beginning. <laughs> so I'm like, you get what you get. You don't get upset. If you get upset, then you don't have to come back. I mean, like, let's just save ourselves a lot of time here. Um, I'm very, very bad at the game. So I can even remember before I was with Steve, you know, oh, you can't call him for two days or you can't do this or you can't do that or whatever. Um, and there's, there's probably some genetic component missing in my brain. Cause I was like, I will do what I want. <laughs> and if they don't like it, then I mean, then we just saved ourselves a lot of time. Right. So, um, I've never understood the game playing, but I, I see it. I see it all the time. So transparency to me is a huge, huge thing, right? Like, let's just get it out on the table because, um, I think, I think when we see people too with the trust issues, with um, that inability to connect or be vulnerable or whatever it is, a lot of those red flags. I mean, we really have to look at behavior as a representation of our internal world, yeah. right? Behavior is a method of communication. So oftentimes when we see these red flags in relationships, what we're actually seeing is someone reacting to a memory 
is someone reacting to a past experience, someone reacting to those unhealed traumas and those wounds that are inside of them that we were talking about at the beginning, right? They're reacting to something that's not happening right now. Yeah. um, And we also have to protect ourselves because um, as much as we might care about that person, it's also not our job. um, And even as a therapist, I say this, it's not my job to heal or fix other responsible adults. That is not my job as a therapist. That is everyone's own personal responsibility. So, and I think that feeds back into the part you were just saying about, you know, pulling back on that physical piece, because once we integrate it, we do start to think we have to fix it. And we do start to think it's our responsibility, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So as a therapist, what is the one piece of advice that you find yourself giving out the most frequently? I think that the piece of advice that I give out the most frequently has to do with um, being able to see the duality in life. So a really great way to gain some cognitive flexibility is to recognize that people, things, environment, situations can be more than one thing at once. So a lot of us fall into this trap of black and white thinking or overgeneralizing, you know, we stop looking at the complexities and I could apply this to us as a collective, as we've seen in the last couple of years, we have lost the art of debate. It used to be okay to be friends with people and think different things and talk about it and have a debate, which I absolutely love. And I love to hear other people's ideas, but now we're falling into this place of, you know, you're this or you're that. And we have to start remembering again, situations, environment, people, relationships, they can be more than one thing at the same time. And when you think about that on a very personal level, um, a lot of our anxiety and a lot of our depression and a lot of our mental health struggles actually come from internal conflict. So part of me wants to do this and part of me wants to do that. And these two parts are inside of me and they are at war and they're both talking at the same time and I'm frozen and I don't know what to do. So, yeah, so like that's where a lot of the anxiety comes from that we're experiencing, right, is not recognizing that we are very complex beings and we can want two different things at the same time. And, you know, a situation can be good and bad at the same time. And I think we've lost that ability to look at the complexity. So my, you know, my biggest piece of advice right now is, you know, walk into the collective knowing nothing, listen to everyone. Yeah. And step inside yourself, knowing nothing and listen to everyone. Right. Because it's when we move into that place where we think things should be a certain way. um, Or we think we know everything or we think we know how it's supposed to go where we really start to manifest this anxiety and this depression. But when we step into things freely with confidence, knowing that we're going to be okay. And that we're always, always, always learning, whether it's internally or externally, our lives are going to be filled with much more spontaneity and much more joy, but we have to remember that it's very, very complex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, people ask me, you know, what do I do if there's a difference in religion, difference in politics? Um, And I say, you accept each other's differences. Like once you understand what someone else's opinion is, they understand yours, you understand them. End of story. Mm. What you say from there is okay. And that's it. You know, and, and my husband and I, we have a lot of differences, different political leanings, vaccination beliefs, and, and it's just like, 
okay, you have a right to your thoughts, opinions, and emotions. I have a right to mine. You have bodily autonomy. You can do what you want. I can do what I want. Mature adults accept each other. Like if Mm -hmm. you're not hurting me, if you're not an absolute douchebag, there's no reason why I can't accept you. Exactly. And I mean, I think, you know, for me, and I use this story all the time, I work in a very general neutral environment. And I work with people who identify as they and them. And I try my very best, right? And sometimes I make a mistake. And all of my coworkers who identify as they and them, they give me a pat on the back and they go, we know you're trying. Because they know that I know that I don't know that I make mistakes and I come to the situation humbly. There's no ill intent. There's no malice. And I think a lot of us are stepping into situations now with these preconceived ideas that we're trying to hold on to so tightly, right? And these ideas and these methodologies and ideologies they have become, you know, representations of ourselves, And that was what I was talking about at the beginning, right? We're looking outside of us for the world to tell us who we are. And then we're holding on to these ideas and assuming they are our identity as opposed to actually really conceiving our identity from that bottom up level. So we're holding on to all this externalization and we come into a situation where other people are too. And then we're at war. We're at war with each other all the time because we feel like it's us and it's not us. Mm -hmm. Right. So I really try to use they and them and everyone at my work knows that I'm doing my best. And if I don't do it, it's a slip of the tongue and people could be called whatever they want. I don't care. I'll try my best, but I might make a mistake. Right. And, and we're all on good grounds. We're all on good grounds. It's not like I've gone in there and said anything where I'm like, I know, or it needs to be this way, or it needs to be that way, because I don't know. Mm -hmm. I tell my clients that all the time. I tell them, listen, I don't know where we're going. I am just in the passenger seat of your car. Um, I can help you make a map and we can go check out left, right, forward, back together. But you're going to be the one that decides what road we ultimately go down. And if it makes you happy, it makes me happy because I don't know where we're going. Right. This. Yes. Mm. Ah, I could talk to you all day. I could talk to you all day. Uh, I mean, you know, you can come back anytime. We're going to have your birthday party. We're going to have my birthday party. (laughs) We got, we got got a couple of parties coming up. We sure do. We're going to do some Toronto. We're also going to do my backyard in the summer. Um, So looking forward to this. Also looking forward to doing more podcasts with you. I want to do a podcast on dating and red flags, what you think we should be looking out for. I want to do a podcast on relationships, the kind of strategies you recommend people use in relationships. What do you think about a zero five relationship? Don't answer now because we'll get to another 10 minutes. I know it. Um, but let's, let's do a conversation about boundaries, (laughs) boundaries. Absolutely. (laughs) Again, expressing needs, being able to express our needs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, let's do it, Melissa. I love you. This is such like a match made in heaven, to be honest. Right. Because we're both like funky, strong, intelligent, driven, ambitious, uh love edm and our yeah. djs <laughs> yeah with a side of dj and dancing right <laughs> i love it it's the perfect combination 
Amazing. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me today. It's great. I loved it. And like you said, we could chat all day. We could totally chat all day, but we will chat soon. (laughs) We're going to chat all day, but we're going to break it up into increments. Yeah. And between that, we're going to dance and go for a nice dinner. It's so perfect. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Thank you, Mila, for coming on. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.